I find interest in the spaces that I live in and visit. And those spaces to me are magical. You know, they're interesting, uh, even though they're kind of mundane, shall we say, I think you can find, you know, wonder and uniqueness in just everyday common things. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 186th episode, we are finally back from a long overdue and extended hiatus. We're joined by artist and painter Paul Silas Trapp, who joins us from Portland, Oregon, to discuss his small scale as well as shaped canvases that explore representation, abstraction, as well as place. So please stay tuned for that interview coming up. Of course, if you are finding Studio Break for the very first time or you're hearing this interview by Serendipity, please check out the other ones on StudioBreak.com. Again, we feature a variety of different artists, their work, as well as links to their website so you can find out more information. And, of course, you can listen to the interviews right there on the default player or just click that hyperlink to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast. If you are interested, we are also on social media, so please be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow our Twitter account at Studio Break, and of course, our Instagram handle is at Studio Break, so please say hi and hello there. Studio Break is made possible in part by generous support from the Osage Arts Community, which is a proud sponsor of Studio Break. Osage Arts Community is an artist residency that provides temporary time, space, and support for the creation of new artistic work in a retreat format, serving creative people of all kinds, including visual artists, composers, poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers. Osage is located on a 180-acre working farm in the rural mountainside setting of central Missouri, bordered by the lovely Gasconade River. OAC provides residencies to those working alone, as well as welcoming collaborative teams, offering living space and workspace in a country environment to emerging and mid-career artists. Interested parties should visit Osage Arts Community's website for more information, as they are now accepting applications for the 2018 season. Osage Arts Community, where land, art, and community ignite. All right, it's been long overdue, but here is a new interview for the new year. Paul Silas Trap coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Paul Trap. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on, David. Yeah, and you're, you're joining us uh, from uh, Oregon, is that correct? Yes, Portland, Oregon. I'm uh, in my office adjacent to. The garage, which doubles as my studio. I'm awake. I've been up since six, so <laughs> I'm ready to go. Well, and of course, um, you know, we're here to talk all about your painting. And but again, it's interesting to kind of look over our kind of histories because you know some of them kind of cross over. We kind of studied at uh, Illinois State University, and maybe kind of know some of some of the same people. But I guess if, if you could kind of uh, summarize, just in a nutshell, if you could just kind of give us a, a little bit of a background about where you uh, grew up and. Um, maybe some of your educational experience. We can start kind of breaking some things down further, of course. But Sure, sure. No, uh, I'm from Madison, Wisconsin originally. Spent the first 18 years uh, there. And I guess when I was young, I really enjoyed things like comic books. Uh, and I think that did have a 
kind of big influence on art later on for me, just kind of the bright colors, the kind of designed aspects of them. And then from there on, I went to Bethany Lutheran College uh, for a four-year degree, but I took one of those years to go study in Italy and then at Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. So that's, that's at least kind of the undergrad setup there. And was that something that you always kind of knew that you wanted to do in terms of like being an artist? I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things where you think about like, you know, comic book art to, you know, fine art is such a weird transition. And I, again, I was right in that same boat, you know, going to drawing one and being like, we're drawing what? Mm -hmm. Like I want to draw spider. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) I like drawing uh, at a very young age. I think all of us do. We all start out as uh, drawers and then at some point we end up kind of stop drawing and it's usually around that like fourth, fifth grade, like middle school where we start getting self-conscious uh, that people are looking at what we're making. Um, my son's kind of in that boat right about now. And uh, I just kind of didn't stop. I remember being about six or seven and having a portfolio or, you know, like a folder filled of comic book characters I created. I remember taking a comic book class in high school, like how to, actually make it and this was the old way of doing it before all the computers do it you know most of the work now but when you were in high school then did you have a lot of like experiences in terms of some of the classes that they were offered because again it's it's crazy how different and then i'm sure especially now i mean you know think about like having a 3d printer like 20 years ago would have been super cool but yeah well actually my high school didn't i think they had art one two and three which i think i took five times oh. um and yeah So I actually took the uh, comic book course from uh, the University in Madison, uh, the UW. Uh, I took that during summertime from, uh, it was Lucy, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her last name. It's been so long. If I think of it, I'll say later. But she was very, very influential because she wanted, she actually studied um, scientific objects. Like she'd look at um, microscopes of lichen, I think it was, Mm -hmm. and she would copy them for uh, scientists and doctors. And so she had this really interest in like doing observational work, but at kind of a micro scale um, that I found very interesting. Um, And so she taught me all about comic book art and just art in general. And I think I took class from her about three years in a row, three summers in a row. Cool, cool. So what was the decision in terms of then studying it uh, for for undergrad, especially like art history? Was there any kind of particular experience um, that kind of led you to that? I knew I wanted to do art. And so uh, when I had, but I I also had interest in a lot of other things. So I decided to go to a liberal arts school. Um, And of course, I started studying art right away. But then I also took classes in like mythology, religion, philosophy, poetry, things like that along the way, just because I wanted to know more just about anything kind of and everything uh, right away. So that's why I went there. But then the other reason was the school that I went to just started its first art degree uh, about a year or two before I started there, I think it was, or something like when I came in, they were graduating their first art majors. So I knew I'd have some liberties to kind of make my own degree to an extent, which I did. I ended up actually, uh, I always wanted to learn printmaking. The professor there, one of the professors there got this really awesome printmaking uh, uh, printing press. And he went on sabbatical 
and he was very, very cautious when he was there to not let us like move it or take it anywhere or do anything if he wasn't there. Uh, and so I actually, when he went on sabbatical, I stole it and put it down in my studio. <laughs> and, and of course, cause the other, the person who was filling in for him knew nothing about this. And I just did an entire printmaking, like self-study that semester. <laughs> so, and, uh, I don't, if he ends up listening to this podcast, I don't know if he ever knew that I did it cause I put it back at the end of the semester. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the statues limitations might be passed. So <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe just like a nice uh, holiday card or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, no, always always been interested in art, but then just interested in other things as well. I did minor in art history there. Did take some time at Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design and then in studying in Italy because I wanted to kind of broaden the education a bit. But I remember coming back and I think my last semester I was doing something like 20 credits and doing an internship um, at one of the local high schools to teach. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was actually one of the reasons I decided to go to grad school is I really wanted to teach art. Uh, I have a lot of teachers in my family. So uh, that was the one way to get to the university level to teach. So you kind of mentioned again, this experience um, working with, um, you know, printmaking, um, but were were you kind of painting or drawing while you were kind of like earning that like studio art? Oh, yes. I was a painter through and through. Still okay. am. I just wanted to uh, learn how to use uh, the printing, pre- uh, printing press because it was uh, just another way to experiment and kind of broaden my abilities at that time. Sure. In, in undergrad, I mean, I remember making a few paintings that were that I'm now looking back on were really important. I did a lot of blurry paintings, a couple abstract pieces, and I did this one really large, um, like cityscape piece. That it was actually one of the two paintings I think I sold in undergrad, mm-hmm. and all of them really kind of. Now I realize that it's a lot about. Uh, they were all kind of about this abstract space to an extent, mm-hmm. or this idea of a place, a setting. And then it was always distorted in some way. So I remember looking back at those. And again, those are all paintings. I didn't go to grad school right away, though. My wife and I graduated, I think, in May, got married in June, and then we both moved to Korea in July to go teach English for a year, pay off student loans. So you basically have it all dialed in. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you can. Sorry, I, I anecdotally heard from a student that was like, I've already racked up 20 grand in debt, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And you just think about all that. That's, again, that's kind of a nice uh, way to kind of work through that. And, you know, again, probably a super challenging teaching experience, but I'm sure that, um, especially just kind of being in that environment, I'm sure you, you learned a lot too. Oh, yes, absolutely. A lot about communication, a lot about teaching, uh, a lot about being flexible with situations. It's a, you know, how different cultures approach uh, different problem solving, things like that. So that was a that was a very good and informative year. Well, and also it seems like then there's, um, you know, like a lot of different places that you've maybe inhabited then, you know, and, or at least visited or traveled. Is, is travel something that was always like on your mind as well i mean if you're going to italy and then uh Uh, wisconsin to out to portland you know you're kind of everywhere i don't know um i think more of that is influential for my wife when i was uh younger uh i remember like high school age i never wanted to go do those things i'm i'm more of a homebody personally Mm -hmm. but 
the opportunity to study in Italy was something I kind of couldn't turn down. And my wife grew up in the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, she spent, I think six, like her six years in like from grade school to almost just before high school there. So she's a renowned world traveler. Her, uh, her family's moved, moved something like 13 times when I've met her for the first time. So, and you're a better person for it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, she's, uh, got me out of my shell a little bit more. So it's, it's been nice to do that. Well, so, and you guys kind of mentioned, you know, there's a, a gap maybe between, um, you know, the undergraduate degree and then and uh, studying uh, painting again at uh, Minnesota State University. Um, what led you there? Was there a particular uh, experience or just visiting different colleges? And I applied to graduate school the first time I was in Korea, and it didn't go as I planned. I learned a lot about the art kind of community uh, through that. Um, I think I applied to like 10 places, and I didn't get in anywhere except for MSU, and they had just started their uh, graduate program. Mm -hmm. And and it was, I felt kind of bad about it. But then I was later talking to another uh, artist who was about twice my age at the time. And he said, don't think anything of it. You could be the best chocolate painter in the world. And if that school wants vanilla, you're out. So (laughs) so I was like, ah, well, that makes a lot more sense. But then I, I got my MA there. And while doing that, applied to Illinois State, and uh, I actually applied to like two or three places. I got into Illinois State and um, Minneapolis Institute of Art and Design, but I really wanted to study at uh, Illinois State because there's a professor there, and they're known for being a good teaching college, uh, mm-hmm. a normal school. Well, in, in terms of uh, your your painting experience then um, at MSU, what what did that kind of consist of? Because I'm assuming then it's a like a two year degree then, or yeah, yeah, it's a two-year two two-year program. I think because we had our son in the middle of that, I extended mine a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like I graduated in the summer or something. That was a very informative time because I got to work with a number of really great artists there. I had a kind of a larger faculty than I had had previously. Had a lot of good influences there. The majority of my work coming out of that actually turned fairly abstract. And I had been doing a lot of representational painting kind of previously observational, but slightly distorted. Mm -hmm. And at MSU, I ended up doing almost nothing but abstract work by the end. Very Diebenkorn-ish, I would say, just to describe what it kind of looked like. And with that portfolio, that's what got me in at ISU. Well, and so you were kind of talking about your, your paintings. Again, we've got to get into that, of course. Um, yes. So, you know, you kind of describe them, I guess, as being a little bit more abstract, and you kind of fluctuated between abstract and representation. Are there any artists in particular that you can think of maybe around that time before you kind of, you know, maybe honed in more on, um, I guess, the more, you know, recent work? And I say recent relative to, you know, completing your MFA, but... Were there any kind of particular artists, you know, like around that kind of earlier period that you were particularly drawn to? I mean, you just mentioned Diebenkorn, which I yes. can certainly see in um, a lot of the, some of those earlier interior kind of based uh, paintings from around maybe like uh, I think they're listed as like 2009 on your, your website. Yeah, that was uh, I think those were all kind of early grad school pieces in there. Um, but, yeah, he, he definitely is a huge influence. I um, actually got to meet a painter, um, it's kind of an odd story, kind of an offshoot about this, but 
I had some work down in a, a gallery in Southern Oregon at the, it's the Untitled 2.0 gallery. And a guy was just driving by and I saw my work. It reminded him of Devencorn and he pulled over and went into the gallery. Turns out this guy was a painter too, who actually studied in California and was a studio assistant to Devencorn. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the next, uh, I think it was like three months later, the gallery did a show of his paintings. Uh, uh, Paul James Cunningham is his name. But uh, yeah, Demon Corn was very, very uh, influential to me. I would say other people, definitely people like De Kiriko. I would also say Ewan Oglo um, is one, one very large influence. And I remember learning about him, I think, back in like 2003 or so, 2002, highly representational work, uh, and but done in a way where it's all measurement-based and all very angular and kind of a combination between Giacometti and uh, Cezanne to an extent, I would say. So I'd say those were big influences. And later on, uh, Rene Magritte, of course, uh, in grad school, I really got into him and Wong Gri. Well, and to kind of think about the, the again, paintings from around 2009, you, you were just mentioning that this is while you're at Illinois State University. Is that correct? Yeah, the 2009 ones is, uh, yeah, I think my second year at Illinois State. I certainly kind of want to see the way that they kind of look in person, you know. So it's always, a, you know, a compromise when you're looking at it on a screen, but you can kind of kind of feel that kind of like surface. Um, it seems like it's very important. Then, of course, also, um, you know, Diebenkorn, like all those kind of like flat um, expanses of color. But it's interesting to kind of think about it, maybe re- working in with those um, kind of interior settings, um, you know, just to kind of maybe break down the process a little bit. How How did you... I guess, work through those? I mean, was that something where you were, um, you know, photographing a lot or drawing a lot um, to kind of base a uh, painting, or do you just kind of work directly with paint? Or my preference for working is initially from life and then to distort what I mm-hmm. make. So all those, um, the one thing that was different at that point, previously I'd only pretty much done canvas work or um, paper, and then I started doing panel at uh at Illinois State. And so those early ones are all panel. And I just loved the surface quality you could create with those because it really kind of created a an atmosphere mm-hmm. or sense of presence and of place and time. Um, and so I stuck with a lot of panel work at that time. And then it, it kind of developed, it developed into different things um, over time. Talking too about like that initial, you know, working from observation, and then is it like then just a matter of like just making, you know, color decisions that are going to maybe interact with the painting or kind of be based on, you know, maybe changing something up or pushing like a maybe like a neutral color out in one direction and then I don't know painting yourself into a corner. <laughs> well, well, yeah, the way I initially did it was I would just start with the painting and it, that was it. And so if I needed to change something, I would paint over it or sand it down or, and I'd just keep reworking and reworking the piece till it was uh, all set. But what's, what I got out of grad school, that changed completely. And currently kind of what I do is I'll make a small piece out of paper and I'll paint up the idea. I try and do it from observation, mm-hmm. but just due to time restraints, a lot of times it becomes take a picture with the camera phone, you know, and then um, work from that later, uh, which is not as thrilling. I don't think you capture quite the amount of presence 
of uh, doing that, but but it sometimes is a necessity. But I'll make the small work, then I'll take that piece on paper that I do, and I cut it up, and I reposition it, and I'll move things around, and uh, just completely re-edit the image um, prior to making the final image, and then I'll make it larger and on panel. So when you eventually graduated, I mean, what, what kind of work was it that you were primarily doing? Is it more of these kind of like interior settings or had you started the, any of the kind of like more shaped kind of paintings? Uh, it was interior settings. And uh, yeah, I made some really bad work right after grad school. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just remember uh, I, I, I still have a couple of those pieces, I think, uh, lying around, but um I wasn't very happy with some of the stuff I was doing, but it was all still interior. And I, I really like interior spaces. I really like that, that sense of place in the, in the work. And what happened was I had been thinking uh, while making these interior pieces of, I was thinking like, you know, I don't really like this section over here. I don't like that section of the painting over there. And I was like, I wonder if I should just cut it off, just get rid of it. And the funny thing was, like, after I had that thought, I had had um, a friend come over to the studio to just do a studio visit. And he said the same thing to me. It's like, why don't you just lob that, you know, part of the piece off? And then my son, the next day, <laughs> was down in my studio. And he's like five or six at the time. And he's like, Daddy, I don't like that black space on the painting. You should just get rid of it. Or something. He said something like that. And so I was like, okay, if one person says it, that's one thing. But if two people, that, that's important. So I, I took like four pieces I had at the time and cut off a whole bunch of things and then had to kind of rebuild the back. I, I've gotten better at doing that now, um, hence the why I do preparatory drawings and paintings. And so what was the, I guess, next big shift then after after kind of like recognizing this could be like a different approach, you know? And again, obviously, you're probably not at this point, uh, <laughs> you're probably really planning everything out as opposed to just, I'm going to cut that off and try to sand it back. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the current process, I guess, talking about where I'll, I'll paint it and then uh, a small scale in paper and then cut and paste. Uh, so, yeah, those those uh, and and. I guess I always had this fear in like undergrad or I don't know, some kind of stigma where I thought the painting's the painting and that's all you do. Mm -hmm. um, even though in art history, of course, so you knew, I knew people did preparatory drawings, did whatever, but there seemed to be this, I don't know, kind of idea that that's the thing, the painting's the thing. And then I remember in grad school looking at the catalogue de raisonne of Wong Gri and in that catalog, they literally had his uh, preparatory paintings, like his his mistakes and all that on the left-hand page, and then the final work in color on the right-hand page. Mm -hmm. And so it was like he did a prep painting for every single painting he made. And I was just kind of shocked by that, and I think that stuck with me. And so I was like, it's not cheating, it's not... There's something about the originality, I think, that people will get hung up on. If it's not the original painting, it's not the original idea. It's kind of garbage or something, I think. But I, but I realize it's just it's such bad thinking when making art. The more you do it, the better you're going to get at it and the better it's going to look. Well, and again, it's it's fun to work from intuition and kind of be on the fly. And I think sometimes it works out really well. But yeah, I mean, especially if you're going to be, you know, putting all sorts of time into something to kind of 
you know, experiment and kind of plan it out and see, you know, what, what's going to work or what colors you like, or, you know, how the composition is set up. I mean, that makes total sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard to cut a five foot by four foot painting really delicately on a table saw, you know? Right. So, <laughs> well, and again, just to kind of, um, especially think about it relative, you know, you've been talking a little bit about making these little, um, maquette paintings. I mean, are there any other kind of sources of, I don't know, images that you kind of work from? You mentioned like in some of the earlier ones, you kind of like to work from direct observation, but you know, I don't know if that means then that you're like working up small scale watercolors and then cutting out the pieces that you like and starting to collage them together with some of these more kind of abstracted things, but it's usually something I personally experience or a space that I, uh, have a strong memory about or, a, you know, something that's influenced me occasionally I'll invent my own spaces. And I think at one point I tried looking at things like, you know, catalogs or just photographs online and tried using that. And they, they never came out as those, those never came out as good. So I kind of junked that idea. It's either personal photographs or direct observation or, um, from my imagination now, Mm -hmm. Uh, it was all direct observation early on. And I, and I wish I could do more of that, but Time doesn't always permit that when you need to keep producing work. Sure, sure. And again, to kind of bring it back to maybe the most recent, um, you know, set of images from your most recent work uh, that's on your website. Again, the first thing that I noticed, and obviously because it's at the top chronologically as well, um, but those those window-shaped paintings, um, that seems like that, again, is like a... I don't know, a nice arrival, I guess, if you will, you know? Oh, the cir- yeah, the, the circular windows there. Yes, that was a combination of seeing, uh, I can't remember where the heck that was at the time, but um, it was seeing, seeing that from an outside perspective, actually, on a building. Then going, that would be an amazing set of paintings, and you could really manipulate it and do a lot of different things with it. And so I actually went to... Um, Vitlichill. It's a VYT. It's a residency in New York. And my plan while there was to make those pieces. And it was a month long residency. Uh, and I think I made those pieces in the first two weeks there. <laughs> and then had another like week and a half or so to uh, make more work and try different stuff. So um, I, those were very, very, uh, I, I thought it was a good um, culmination of kind of working with the shape pieces but what I realized too, in that I was I was trying to do something very particular with those. Um, I was trying to draw the circles in an exaggerated perspective, uh, so that when they were put into a corner, it would feel like you're getting sucked in to the corner a bit more. Mm-hmm. And what I realized with is trying to that there is no machine to cut circles in a perspective oval. Uh, you can. There's machines to cut perfect ovals, but to do it in perspective, there is such a weird twist in space that that you had. I had to do it by hand, and so they ended up not not in the shapes that I really wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they look hand done. They and uh, there are a number of people that looked at them and they love that quality to them. Mm-hmm. To me, initially, I was like, this this project failed. I should have done squares like square windows. Mm-hmm. But but the more I more people who are interested in said these look great they look really nice and then Dwayne Lumpkin at the Until Point Two Gallery he 
took them and actually put them up on his gallery, um, like overhang. So it was in a totally different, totally different surrounding. I always planned him to go in a corner of a room, but uh, putting him in a different scenario there kind of made me love him again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was very uh, informative piece last uh, about two years two years to this year so yeah well again as i'm you know taking notes you know looking at stuff earlier um i just again there's kind of like this almost like interdimensional quality to your work and again i don't it's hard to kind of know somebody's history when you only have like you know what's available but i kind of think about that in um you know reference to some of the other work and i just think like that's such a nice setup to come in kind of maybe think about some of the other pieces that kind of get followed up with this kind of like I don't know, this relationship that you're almost setting up where you have kind of like these almost kind of interior spaces that you're alluding to and then this kind of like entryway into some other space and um, just kind of exploring that, that, I don't know, that relationship is really interesting to me. Yeah, the, the, well, it's the relationship of space and time. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a con- and creating a contradiction with those, which, I mean, in a large sense, the Cubists did that. Um, they had a very particular way in which uh, they were trying to distort space from multiple perspectives of an individual. And I, I really liked almost somewhat more of what some of the surrealists would do, where you could have a complete surprise uh, of space, something totally different, kind of, a, a, kind of like this aha moment or something where it's like, what's going on? This is very strange. And so that, that contradiction of having a space that makes no sense next to a space that does make sense. And then just an entry or port into that has been something I've always just, it's, it's always there in the work in some way, whether it's a window or a door or uh, something like that. It's, it's a way of creating kind of an odd contradiction. But, you know, you can kind of see that sense of surrealism in terms of the, some of the setups, but I'm curious too, if there's any other kind of influences um, in particular, in terms of I don't know, coming up with some of these uh, compositions, you'd mentioned like daily life earlier. Maybe kind of wanted to work more from you know observation if possible. So, are they kind of like a combination of like almost like I don't know a, a collection of different experiences? Would you say? But how about we talk specifically, yeah, well, like maybe about a piece like the piece uh, "Sailing" from 2015? Oh yeah, that. That one actually does have a pretty good story. I'm glad um, you picked that one. That one started off where I had um, a mirror. I, we were moving or something. We had like this mirror, and it was set up in the corner of the room. And I just liked how it had reflected the other space and kind of tilted and made this odd space. And so I wanted to do a, a painting about a mirror on like a wood floor. Um, I think Pearl's. Uh, Philip Perlstein did a bunch of pieces kind of like that. I remember thinking of that and that would be a good relationship to add into the piece. And um, what ended up happening though, is the first time I did it, it was very, very square and very boring. Uh, And so I had to change it up and redo it. And I redid it about six times and eventually the mirror completely went away. And now you just had that kind of wood border that kind of wraps around the piece. And it, you know, it could, could have been a mirror, could have been a door but then the bottom shape with that angled top border started to kind of look like a bo- bit of like a boat. And so I just went with that and I made it more like the bottom part, more like the hull of a boat. And I couldn't quite shape the 
top into like a sail, but but it's still there's still something about like a like a mask. They look like two kind of masts sticking up there because they're a wood grain. And um, so then I just decided if if this is going to be a boat, we got to put an ocean in there. So it ended up being instead of a mirror of the floor, it just ended up being uh, this gateway into um, an ocean scene. And I and I think kind of with what you were talking about before, like, is this a, asking the question, is this a conglomeration of different images? A lot of that um, ocean work started to come into my work when we moved to the West Coast. So just experiential things, mountains, water, a lot more of that came in since I've moved here. And before it was a lot of interior spaces, which I found, I've, I've always found interior spaces interesting. Even I tend to remember them better uh, than than people sometimes uh, I have memories when I was like four or five, you know, of spaces that uh, I was in that I know don't exist anymore. My parents are like, how do you remember that? You were, we were like in a hotel in Seattle and you were like four. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, I like that. I like space. I like the, the, those kind of, they capture a history, they capture a presence. And so my boys had quite a, quite an interest in that. Well, perhaps something that we haven't talked about much either, too, is obviously like there's, you know, interesting color choices and, and dynamics in your paintings. Is that also something that you think kind of maybe informs something that you want to make a, a painting about, like the way that, I don't know, light works and hits things? or? Yeah, absolutely. That was pretty much all of my graduate work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was It was being able to, in, in grad school, there was this awesome studio that I had that had a wall with a window and the light would cascade down the walls and there the walls were kind of subtly angled and then there's this table there too so all those table paintings uh, on my website are all from uh, the interior of my studio there and the light uh, really captured the sense of time and moving and motion in a painting which has no time it has no motion you know but it still gave the sense of something happening or like a portent of something that's going to happen. And so that form of work has been informative to these current pieces. Um, but I don't, uh, it doesn't see, it doesn't always show up as uh, readily as it did back in those early paintings. I don't know. I just, when I look at the work, there's, there's a lot of them that you can kind of sense that there's a, a level of kind of precision or maybe, you know, like a really kind of considerate thought process and granted I might be jumping around here in terms of pieces, but there's another one that um, I've been looking at uh, called glass voyage. And it strikes me, especially like that um, the way that you have this kind of like cool ocean and you set up like a nice complementary color scheme to kind of border it, but then it slowly moves from this, you know, orange tone to, you know, kind of slowly dissolving into something that becomes more neutral and then just kind of this dark border that's in front that becomes part of the spatial, you know, aspect of the piece as well and kind of creates that surrealistic kind of like illusion of it kind of popping out. But how how heavily is like a design aspect or teaching design or thinking about design kind of influencing these, um, you know, aside from just somebody that just like, again, you know, paints off the hip? I, I don't do like computer graphic design, but I do teach um, just like I, I, I like the foundations courses in two dimensional design, and those those things definitely have influenced me. I've I've always loved measurement, like being able to kind of measure and exact proportions. 
uh, while drawing and drawing. I th I'd say that it's somewhat more of a combination between drawing and design that will influence that uh, the, the structure of the work. That's the initial structure of the work, but then the ideas and the that kind of painting from the hip that you talk about that comes in in the initial planning. Uh, and so uh, some people have told me they like the miniature works that I do where I cut them up and move them around better. They like those better. Um, personally, I, I look at them as kind of trying to figure out what I'm, what I want to make. It's that's the problem solving aspect. And then to make it nice and large and crystal clear uh, to me just seems like a, it, it, it's there's more of a confidence in those those works than in the small ones because the small ones are you get to see the whole process you get to see all the mistakes you get to see all that and some people like that I think but I like I like having the confident work kind of bold and out there. Well, and something that we maybe kind of addressed a little bit, um, but not directly, is just the I guess intention too in terms of you know like as you're gonna you know present a new body of these pieces or. Again, more recently, it's kind of the um, smaller format, you know, square paintings, but especially with these, you know, shaped paintings, are there particular things that you, you know, really want people to be able to take away from it? Or what do you think about that experience when somebody, you know, comes up and sees your work? Is there, again, an openness in terms of what you want them to kind of experience? Or what would you say? Yeah, with these paintings, I want people to have their own experience. Obviously they're, they're going to, I can't, I'm not, I can't stop people from thinking one way or the other way about the, about the work, but I try and gear it towards a slight more specific set where people are drawn in by the things they recognize in the work, the floors, the walls, windows, whatever it is, they, they recognize those things and those objects. And then the more they look at it, the more, it becomes unfamiliar and there's a contradiction that makes them kind of do a double take. And then they have to sit there and the idea is they have to sit there and look at it to kind of figure it out and see what's happening. And I think a lot of that just is because I, I think I find interest in the spaces that I live in and visit. And those spaces to me are magical. You know, they're interesting, uh, even though they're kind of mundane, shall we say, I think you can find, you know, wonder and uniqueness in just everyday common things. Um, who was it that always talked about that? Um, Magritte always talked about that. He said uh, that he liked just being at home and walking around and seeing what he could find and then imagine with that object. Magritte never had, like, a car. He lived in the same place for the longest time. He painted in his living room and would put his paint set away when people came over. So he, he was a very private guy, too, and I, I, I love that idea of all these amazing, fantastical pieces he did. He did from just walking around his house and looking at his shoes or, you know, something on his mantle. <laughs> well, it makes you think about, too, like the – and I know, again, obviously there's, um, you know, a strong place in, you know, reading and studying theory and all of that. But that level of experience, I mean, that that's something that always really kind of appealed to me as as someone that makes something, you know, to be able to kind of – observe and kind of reflect on your own experience to, to kind of do something in a different way than maybe kind of reacting to some, like a philosophy or a thought process. So there's, I don't know, there's something interesting about that process. Yeah. The, the just observation in general, I think is something that our society has 
almost kind of flushed out of us. We, we aren't very active interpreters and observers of our surrounding. We, we, we have so many screens and things just thrown at us visually. We aren't very good at reading visuals or sitting down quietly and looking at something for a long period of time. It just, it's, it's not done as much, I think, as it was. And I enjoy doing that. And that's kind of what I hope to an extent people will get out of the work too, is that it's something that makes you stop and try and figure it out. Makes you stop and look at a static image that's not trying to sell you something or not trying to, you know, throw the newest app onto your phone or whatever. You know, just it's something that's static and solid and stays there. And uh, it's up to the viewer. Then it requires something from the viewer. It, it asks them to investigate it. Um, unlike you know, like a summer blockbuster film that all you got to do is just sit there and soak it up because they give you the sound, they give you the motion, they give you the the uh, storyline, it's it's the closest thing to reality without it being reality. Well, it's it seems like the, I don't know, there's like a identifying something versus experience something. You know, just like you can see a picture of a James Terrell piece, but to kind of be completely blown away by it, you know, just because you're, you just didn't know this museum had this piece. And, you know, it just sets up this kind of interesting phenomenon, you know, or... I don't know. I just, again, it's interesting to me to think about it relative to our time as well, because I mean, I've taken, you know, you can have surreal moments looking at, you know, garbage cans in the right light, you know? Yes. <laughs> Which I is... know I got a computer full of photos of stuff like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so to kind of get back to, um, especially the, the painting. Um, so what would you say has been, um, the kind of shift in, in terms of some of the focus then for the, especially most recent series that you've been, uh, producing this year that, which are all, I believe, uh, just eight by eight square formats. I think, uh, the, the larger shape pieces take a lot more effort and time to create, and so I wanted, I needed something to like get these other ideas out. And this just seemed like a perfect um, way to do that. And then to, of course, test things. So like if I have a good small one like that, I can use it for maybe a larger piece later. But it was also the influence of another painter. Um, the, the I think I told the story about meeting Paul James Cunningham before. I went over to his studio and got to interview him for a catalog that was being put out. And when I looked at his pieces, I realized he was painting on raw canvas. And I was like, you know, you don't do that. That's what you always learn in, you know, school right. and stuff. But he will put uh, essentially raw canvas onto a board and then paint with oils directly onto it, uh, mix, oils mixed with beeswax. And it has this really awesome texture to it. Well, I decided, you know what, I've always been using kind of pretty plain paneling for myself. What if I actually get some really good uh, wood uh, for these pieces and see what that does? And it, the wood itself, create if you paint on raw wood, it creates a very interesting texture for landscape work especially. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of was part of the intrigue in that, and that's what I think got me going in it uh, and doing more of them. And, of course, some of them are just, they become kind of plain. They become... Uh, just like a regular painting, but some of the wood grain becomes very important too. So, well, and it's also like it seems like some of those, you know, shapes that become abstracted from, you know, whatever surreal kind of reality you're setting up for the more shaped canvases, like those shapes find a way into almost like almost feeling like a collage of some of these different um, 
I don't know, different views. So like, for example, the, uh, from Charles Sheeler, you know, you kind of have this like sky background, but then you have things that kind of might be reminiscent of architecture or even just, just straight up kind of design. Oh gosh, that's the, uh, the house one. Yeah, no, I saw a painting. I always liked his, his work, but I saw a painting he did at, um, gosh, I think when I was in New York and, it was one I'd never seen before. Like, you know, couldn't never found online or in a catalog or anything. And, um, it, I think I did a quick sketch of it and I took that one home and just had to, had to redo it, had to manipulate what he already manipulated <laughs> just cause I liked the composition. And so the smaller works allow me to kind of do some of those quick ideas. Some of those things I want to do just to see what happens so you talked a little bit about also just trying to be able to make it work a little bit more quickly. Is there something that's been especially satisfying to kind of be able to kind of really push the paint on this, the scale? Because like, again, some of the other work is still, you know, much larger, three or four feet. Um, and I would imagine then in terms of even like the scale of the brushes and things like that, that you use, has it been something that's really kind of tightened up the, the craft side of it? Um, a little bit. I, uh, I know I've, I've learned to kind of have a different set of brushes for those smaller pieces and a different kind of set of materials. I've learned which paints kind of not to use at that scale. So, yeah, I mean, this is boring technical stuff, but, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a good shift for me because I like, I like kind of keeping on my toes with those different things, trying, trying something different in one area. And I've always kind of jumped back and forth between abstraction and representation and, um, the smaller ones, uh, just with the restrictions in them caused me to think differently, be more creative, uh, with that size and that, uh, that shape instead of with the larger ones where I can just use like a sheet of paper and I can cut it up and I can do anything I want with it. Uh, this one gives me a border, gives me a setting, gives me a, a texture to work on. Uh, it, it's got a, a different set of parameters, um, and it's it's kind of reinvigorated some of my interest in landscape work, too. Well, and we talked a little bit about, too, how long the, the shaped ones took you, or at least you kind of implied a long time. How How long would you say you're working one of these smaller ones, and are you kind of like one of those painters that'll just focus on one thing at a time or are you doing you know <laughs> <No>. <laughs> multiple things at the, at the same time yeah yeah uh whenever i have those i have about 10 of those small ones going at the same time the larger works yeah do take do, i think you asked me what how long it took to make one of those and uh if i had a concentrated effort it and i don't work on those singularly either i'll have like a bunch of i'll make a bunch of small ones and work on the small ones all at the same time and then i'll cut them all out and then work on the lum at a large scale uh, all at the same time. And so to, to narrow down how long one specific piece piece takes is a little difficult. But uh, the, the small ones, anywhere from I can be done in like an hour or less to, you know, however many, like six hours maybe if I really rework it and rework it. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends. The large ones take do take just because there's two steps to the process and cutting the wood. It takes a lot more time. But I've been looking at um, I got a grant to use a laser cutter. Uh, so I'm designing a whole bunch of pieces that can go in a, about an 18 by 24 format because that's the restriction with the laser cutter. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that will make uh, doing this a little bit faster, doing the large sh- uh, shaped pieces faster. 
Well, and again, in terms of just material, obviously with, with the acrylic, you're able to, you know, kind of paint things much more quickly than if you're using like oil paint, obviously. So you're able to kind of like layer and rework stuff probably in a much more efficient manner than someone else working with oils. Yeah. Well, I wish, I honestly wish I could work with oils more. I, I used to a lot. And then, uh, every place we've been, every, every place I've had my studio, except for, except for grad school, my, my family lives in there and the, the, the toxicity of the oils just starts stinking up the house and it's not good for, you know, kids or pets or anything like that. So, sure. So it's been somewhat of a restriction on that, on that, but, uh, hopefully someday I'll, have a, a larger space separate from the house and be able to I don't know, work with those a little bit more effectively. Well, and this is one of those technical boring questions that, you know, painters might totally dig, but are there any particular odd materials or paint brands that you've come to kind of like, you know, cherish? Um, I, I, again, it's just interesting because people will hold, I don't know, just some technique or some material like a, like this is that thing. Um, so I'm just kind of curious if you've got any hangups like that or not really, uh, the, the, the materials are simply kind of the means to the ends of the idea mm -hmm. in, in a large portion for me. Now, don't get me wrong. I love paint. I love, I mean, I've done watercolor gouache, you know, I got a chance to do some fresco at one point. I, I just love paint of as, as an object as well. Uh, but if it's just for me, if it's just a dialogue only with the paint itself, uh, I think I make really bad work. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's not that I haven't done that before where I just let paint be paint and just just do it. But I do. But for me, the the interest is not only with the paint and what it can do, which which I enjoy. But then it's also with the idea, the image, um, the story or whatever that goes along with the work. I, I like them to work hand in hand. So I, uh, uh, I think, I think when I was in my undergrad and stuff, I, I really liked the idea of just paint, paint is the thing, you know, and it's, it's been a good development over the years where I go, well, I like paint being paint, but I want to be able to do this idea and it doesn't always work out that way. So uh, they don't, they don't always gel together. Is there uh, a show on the horizon in the distant future? Or is it just something where you're again, kind of refocusing on a new series and then you're just going to apply and, um, you know, line it up down the road? Yeah. Well, I got a, a list of things there. I've been uh, doing a number of things for, um, I kind of have a handshake agreement with, uh, the untitled 2.0 gallery. And he's been, I think he had me in like 10 different events last year and he does, he does lots of different things, interior decorating. He's got a gallery, et cetera, but did a couple shows there. And there is a catalog for that work that just came out, uh, about a, about a month ago or no, less than a month ago. It was like a week or two ago. Um, so if people do want to go to the untitled two gallery.com, they can get an awesome catalog with other people in there besides just me uh, Tom Glassman, Paul James Cunningham, Alan Smith, uh, just to mention a few. And then I do have, I'm booked to do a solo show of all new work. And, uh, I've agreed to do this <laughs> to show the process of the work as well at the Untitled 2 Gallery, uh, next year, I think in September. So he wants not just the, the, the final piece, but he wants all the drawings and all the small pieces that lead up to it to go with it. So that's on the horizon. And 
I got to actually today or no tomorrow I got to deliver uh, a bunch of small paintings to the big 500 here in downtown Portland. Uh, it's a charity show for the Oregon food bank. So uh, that's kind of the few kind of close things that are happening and then something big that's happening uh, next year. Yeah. And so um, any other places that people should go check out your work? Uh, are you blowing up the social media as it were? Uh, I have my own website, obviously, paulsilastrap.com. I'm on Instagram. Uh, there's an Instagram feed at the bottom of my website, uh, and it's just at uh, paultrapart. Uh, and I'm also on artsy.net being sold through the Untitled 2 gallery. Um, and just Paul Silas Trap, you can search me that way um, with Artsy in there and you'll find it. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's been super interesting talking to you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks once again to Paul for joining me. Of course, if you want to find out more about Paul's work, please check out Paul Silas Trap and again, follow that Instagram feed so you can see what he's up to in the studio. PaulSilasTrap.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would encourage you to check out StudioBreak.com, see some of the other artists that we've had featured on Studio Break, and listen to their thoughts, listen to their interviews using the default player, or just click that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. It's super easy, and it makes a great studio companion. Of course, if you want to help us out, you can easily do that by liking our Facebook page and sharing interviews and opportunities. You can also do that via our Twitter and Instagram accounts at Studio Break. So please say hello. Always good to hear from other artists and listeners. Studio Break is made possible in part by generous support from the Osage Arts Community, which is a proud sponsor of Studio Break. Osage Arts Community is an artist residency that provides temporary time, space, and support for the creation of new artistic work in a retreat format, serving creative people of all kinds, including visual artists, composers, poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers. Osage is located on a 180-acre working farm in the rural mountainside setting of central Missouri, bordered by the lovely Gasconade River. OAC provides residencies to those working alone, as well as welcoming collaborative teams, offering living space and workspace in a country environment to emerging and mid-career artists. Interested parties should visit Osage Arts Community's website for more information, as they are now accepting applications for the 2018 season. Osage Arts Community, where land, art, and community ignite. And with our announcements out of the way, I do want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my work, please visit DavidLinaway.com to see some of the paintings that are up there. And, of course, you can also find me on Facebook, and my Instagram handle is at DavidLinaway, so please feel free to say hello. And with that out of the way, that is our new episode for the new year. Wishing everyone the best in the studio. We'll talk to you real soon.